Psalm 113, beginning in verse 1, let us hear God's word. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. From this time forth and forevermore, from the rising of the sun till its going down, the Lord's name is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who dwells on high, who humbles himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap, that he may seat him with princes, with the princes of his people. He grants the barren woman a home, like a joyful mother of children. Praise the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, for the word of our God endures forever. Well, as we begin here today, I want us to think about some of the things that are truly marvelous. And uh, maybe one of the obvious things as we go out at nighttime, and when there's actually a clear night around here, and we look up at the stars, and we see uh, them, and and, um, uh, maybe there's no moon, maybe there's a full moon, and and so forth, and and it's truly amazing, is it not? Uh, Ones that always stick in my mind are the times where I was up and the UP of Michigan at Cedar Campus, and being out there with no light pollution, and seeing the Milky Way and, and even northern lights and so forth, just amazing. And as we think about these things, it reminds us of the vastness of space, the greatness of God, and our own insignificance. But maybe it's not our looking up. Sometimes we look down and we look and maybe we see just a bug crawling along the ground. And we're amazed at how God, in his care and his power, made something so small and seemingly insignificant. But also displays his power and his care. So with this in mind, we come now to uh, this part of the psalm that um, basically... uh, elaborates on these ideas. We began last time, of course, and we are here again in this theme of worship. We started that in Psalm 107 and have seen it regularly here in Book 5. Simply, everyone must worship God, but especially God's people. And we are to worship our covenant Lord, Yahweh. We should lift up his name and and, uh, rejoice in his character and so forth. We must do it all the time, from now unto forever. We should praise without ceasing, and we must do it everywhere, not just here on Sunday morning, not just for a few moments at home during devotions, but in, in, in every place. So no matter where, no matter when, we are to be doing this. So whether we eat or drink, whether we sleep or are awake, whether we work or play, at home or at church, private or public, you name it, and all we do We must praise Yahweh. So the question for us is, how did you do this week? Have you been praising without ceasing? Have you been improving on your worship? And again, not just here at church, though certainly it includes that. Well, let's look here at our handout of Psalm 113. And if we turn on the back uh, side of it, we see again the outlines And as I mentioned last time, you see the first two are basically the same, begin and end with hallelujah, and three sections of three verses. The third one 
is a little different. It highlights this rhetorical question in verse 5 and basically surrounds it with the verses, you might say. Like we have seen in the last two Psalms in particular, the name Yahweh is, is the key name here, our covenant Lord. And as I say at the end uh, of this, this side, th- this psalm is just kind of bizarre, you might say. There are hardly any verbs in it, any main verbs. And why is that the case? Well, again, it's not just what is said, but how it's said is important when it comes to poetry. And so as I said, I think the idea here is to highlight the existence of God and the continuous nature of who he is and what he has done. At this point, we will see especially now, beginning in verse 4. So let's then uh, turn our page over and and read verse 4. Being high above all nations is Yahweh. Above the heavens is his glory. Now, first of all, note these words, being. Verse 3, we saw it last week, being praised. Now here, being high. And we see in verse 5, being made high. Verse 6, being made low. Verse 7, being raised up. Now, these are not the main verb of the sentence, but most of our English translations are going to paraphrase and make it a main verb, but they're not. And then, if you look at verse uh, 4, we have the to be verb, the is in parentheses. We see it twice in this verse, again in verse 5, and then in verse 7. And so, why does he do it this way? Well, as I just mentioned a moment ago, I think the point is to say that God is. And there's really no good way of saying that. Verbs, in in many ways, are are insufficient to communicate who God is. Now, don't run with that too far. God made language. But the, the psalmist here is basically struggling to explain who God is, and so he uses terminology that would highlight his existence, that highlight his ongoing nature. And character and ways. Even in verse 2, where we have, let the name of the Lord be blessed, that is worded in such a way to highlight it as well. Um, And so we're just trying to imagine, to explain, to, to, to think about this God who is so far above us that we struggle with language to do it. So here then, in verse uh, 4, he does say, being high. He's always high. He's continuously high above all nations. Our covenant Lord is this. So he's not just above Israel. He's not just greater than the church. He is above all nations. And this is something that is always true, and not just for four years or if you can manipulate the vote or something like that. He's always high above the nations. And so um, here is this description in this line. Nothing will ever rival him. Nothing will ever overcome his absolute power. Now, of course, in in relation to Israel, the nations that they would think of would be nations like Egypt or the Canaanites, the Philistines, the Edomites, later, of course, the Assyrians and Babylonians, and even later the Persians and Romans and Greeks and so forth, right? But all nations... God is above them. Today we might think of progressive America. God is above that too. He's above China. He's above Russia. He's above all the globalists 
who are trying to reset the world in their socialist utopian green plan with eugenics and control and so forth. God's above all that too. In fact, it doesn't even compare. He is so high above these things. And so we praise him for it. We can say we're comforted by this and maybe it challenges us to, to stand boldly in the, in the face of evil. But those are other points. The point here is, look at how great our God is. Think of the highest thing, the highest person, king or president or nation or whatever you can think of. God is so far beyond that there's really no comparison. But then he says he is not merely above the nations of the world. He is above also the heavens. His glory is above the heavens. His loftiness is above the sun, moon, and the stars. So as I started with, we go outside and we look up into the heavens. And it's just mind-boggling even without telescopes. But of course, since I believe it was 1990 when the Hubble telescope first went up, and of course they had to fix it and they improved it and such, and I think the last time they did it was 2009 or something like that, uh, they have given pictures that are just amazing. It's just truly mind-boggling to consider the vastness of the universe. Star formation, as they would call it, and black holes and dust clouds and, and all these sort of things. But Maybe you've heard just uh, within the last year, they sent up a new one, the Webb Telescope, and that is even exponentially more detailed. And not surprisingly, <laughs> astrophysicists and so forth are reevaluating what they had understood before from the Hubble Telescope. Um, so God's above that. As glorious as the sun is, and yes, it does exist even in Western PA, um, but as, as glorious as the moon is or the stars, God's glory is far, far greater. And so he is worthy of our praise. Let's look now at verse 5. Who is like Yahweh our God, being made high in order to sit? Now, you notice how verse 6 is going to continue this. The question mark ends at the end of the verse. And see how I've indented things and so on. But we begin with this question. Who is like Yahweh, our God? The obvious answer here is no one. Nothing. Nothing is like Yahweh, our God. He transcends all things. Okay. He made himself high, he says here, um, in order to sit. He, he sits on his throne, is the implication here. And so he made himself above all other thrones, all other kings, all angelic rulers, all any so-called gods. He sits on a throne above all of them. And that never changes. And there is no God like this. So then verse 6, being made low in order to see in the heavens and in the earth. Again, you see, there's no main verb in these verses. It's just emphasizing something that is something that is continuous. Yahweh is so high, he has to lower himself in order to see the heavens, to see the sun, moon, and the stars, or the furthest away star and galaxy from us, as it were, or from him, or whatever, even the closest one, he's got to come down and look at it. 
Remember, he did that with the Tower of Babel. And so we look up to see the galaxies and solar systems, and it makes us look small. It is so far beyond our comprehension, and yet God's above it all. You remember in Genesis 1, on day 4, it says he made the greater light and the lesser light. And by the way, he made the stars too. It's almost an afterthought for God. That is how great he is. Who is like that? Certainly not Zeus, certainly not Jupiter or Ra or Marduk, not Allah or the Great Spirit, not the Force, nor my human mind. God is above all of them and so far transcendent above them all that we cannot comprehend what this really means. But we must try to grasp a little bit. We must expand our view of God. We must grow in this vastness, as it were, this highness. We must then grow, of course, in our praise of him. We must increase our worship because of the greatness of our God. And so go out on a cloudless night and look up at the stars and imagine God being above every one of these things. Listen to the latest news bulletin about some great power in our world and say, Those are just a drop in the bucket compared to God. The next time you grumble and complain that God didn't do something right in your life, remember that God is far superior to anything. May it motivate you to know him better. May it motivate you to worship him and then to live like him. Well, Verses 4 to 6, if you will, takes us upward. Verses 7 to 9 now take us downward, so to speak. Verse 7, being raised up from the dust is a poor man. From the ash heap he lifts up the needy. All right, well, we finally have a verb here. He lifts up. Hey, being raised up, again, that's not a main verb. That's just part of what we call it. Uh, but we finally have one, and we haven't had one really since verse 1, because the one in verse 2 is combination, we call it paraphrases and such, but anyway, uh, it, it's, it jumps out at us, okay? The verbs here in this psalm are praise, right? Three times in verse 1, it ends in, uh, uh, with the final hallelujah, and now we have this one, he lifts up. Okay? The, the verbs that he does give us also jump out at us. Praise, 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 and then he lifts up. That's the one he highlights. No other God is like this. So, not only does God exist above all things, not only does he routinely stoop down to see the stars in the heavens and even the nations on earth, and that in and of itself is amazing that he would come down just to see those things. But he does come down to earth, but notice he doesn't come down to associate with the kings and presidents, with the uh, rock stars and movie stars, the earthly gods and wealthy and powerful and famous. No, God comes down to the lowest of the low, all the way down, you might say, to the people at the bottom of the totem pole, the people in the lowest caste system, to the nobodies in life. 
to us. Okay. Notice also this point. We talked about the nations in verse 4, but now notice the individual focus. Okay. A poor man. See how it's singular? The word needy is also singular. Okay, and then you see him there in verse 8 in parentheses. And then in verse 9, it's a barren woman, a joyful mother. You see this individual focus. It's not that just God takes care of the church in this kind of general sense. No, he comes down to us individually. No other God does this. And so he is worthy of our praise. And so he comes down to the poor, to the needy, to the powerless, to the vulnerable. And you might say he gets his hands dirty. The poor live on the ground. They're not in nice houses. The ash heap is a reference basically to the burning trash piles that are outside of the city. They take all their trash, their refuse, all these things, and they'd burn them. Well, that's where the poor were because they could stay warm. That's where they could find food scraps or whatever. Today we might call them tent cities or homeless shelters. Maybe we can put it this way. God comes down and he works in the soup kitchens. The Habitat for Humanity, the Salvation Army, you know, these kind of places. Notice, he doesn't steal from the rich to give to the poor using the IRS. He doesn't give you a welfare check that just gives you a little bit higher in your poorness. But of course, keeps you dependent on the government. Yahweh comes to us. And notice in verse 8, in order to cause him to sit with nobles, with the nobles of his people. So you see how verse 8 finishes verse 7's thought. Yahweh lifts up the poor to sit with nobility. And so you may think of it like this. God doesn't take the poor and just put them in some immigrant fleabag hotel or drop them off from a bus in the slum of the city. No, he drops them off at Martha's Vineyard, and then he doesn't ship them out. (laughs) He lifts us up to the gated communities, to the halls of Congress, as it were. This is the kind of God that we serve. This is our God, the God of the Bible. He reverses our circumstances, and as we've seen in Sunday school, right, we may be last here on earth, but he makes us first. So verse 9, <clears throat> causing to sit a barren woman of the house, a joyful mother of sons. Note again, there's no verb here, no main verb. So we, um, we have this continuous idea again, something that God does. And you'll see how we switch from more of a financial, economic scenario, you might say, in, in uh, verse 8 especially. Now to the relational, the family, the emotional, you could say. Let's turn a moment to 1 Samuel and chapter 2. First Samuel chapter 2. You remember, of course, this, uh, the beginning of 1 Samuel about Hannah being barren, not having... Uh, able to have children. She cries out to the Lord and asks for a son, and God gives Samuel to her, and she then gives him to the Lord to serve, and so on. And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, are Hannah's prayer song. And note verse 8, especially. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap. 
to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. Because of this similarity, as I mentioned last week, some people think that maybe Samuel wrote Psalm 113. We don't know. But clearly the author is referring back to this barren woman. And she then is taken and sat in the house. Right? Remember she was overlooked and so forth. And her rival wife would always put her down and so forth. Well now she's going to sit in the house in this prominent way. And in fact altogether she has six children. Not just Samuel. With three more sons and two daughters. God does make her a joyful mother of sons. Now, even in our day, in our culture, a barren woman, that's that's a struggle. Some of you know what that's like. And I don't want to diminish that or minimize that in any way. But in the days of Hannah and uh, the other barren women we see in the scriptures, it was considered the deepest disgrace for a woman. They would be really considered the lowest person in society. Now that may seem a bit strange to us, but that's how big a deal it was for them. They were at the very bottom, even lower than slaves, at least in certain cultures. And of course, obviously, as she grew older and her husband died, there were no sons to care for and so forth. So she was a drain on society. But Yahweh comes to the lowest of the low. And he raises raises him up. And causes her to sit prominently in the house. No longer the seat of disgrace, but the seat in the house. No longer sadness and despair, but joy. This is what our God does. This is who he is. Again, it's not just a little help, like a welfare system. No, he he raises us up to nobility, to this great blessing. So certainly Hannah is is of mind here, but we can think also of uh, Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and the Shunammite woman and Elizabeth and, and even Mary to some degree here. Um, You see how God does this. And, of course, Mary refers back to Hannah when she becomes pregnant with Jesus. This is truly amazing. I mean, wrap your mind around this. In some ways, we're used to hearing these things. Okay, yeah. But it's so far beyond our comprehension that the God who transcends everything actually comes to us. The lowest on the earth to raise us up, comes near to us to help, to transform our lives, to satisfy our longings. And so the one who sits on the heavenly throne causes men to sit with princes and women to sit in the house. You see the similar language there. One commentator put it this way. He said, men will have success at work and women will have success at home. The crowning achievement for both genders is emphasized here in these verses. And so nothing is too great for God, and no one is too small for him. Again, I mean, think about this. I mentioned Buddha last week. I mentioned Allah last week. I mean, think of Zeus. Think of these other so-called gods that people talk about. I mean, none of them compare. Not in any way. No other god is like Yahweh, our God. 
And so expand your view of him and then praise him accordingly and live accordingly. Now, notice in verse 5 the pronoun that is used. Who is like Yahweh, our God? That's the only time we see that pronoun here in this psalm. And obviously it makes it stand out. It's significant. This God, who is above all, has made us part of his family. He is our God. The church, the new Israel. So whether we are poor or handicapped or alone or have few friends, whether we're a nobody or nobody follows us on social media, whether we are not very talented and not part of the in crowd or part of a prominent family, it doesn't matter. We're part of God's family. He has made us prominent in this way. Think of how God took Gideon from threshing wheat to be a judge. Think of how he took David, the shepherd, and the forgotten son to be king. Or Peter, a fisherman who stunk and, you know, was just not very, uh, can you say, thoughtful at times. Uh, But he makes him an apostle, a key apostle. And God takes us, wretched sinners, worms, as David would say even, and makes us his children, spiritual nobility. No other God does this. And so praise him for it. Now let's turn here a moment to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And as usual, there, there are other thoughts contained here, but notice how this fits with Psalm 113. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, verse 26, Paul says, For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, which God has, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. That's us, right? None of us are known really beyond our immediate circles. We're not well known across the world or the country. We're nobodies in this world, so to speak. But we are so important to our God, the one that is above everything. And so praise him. Praise him without ceasing. Now let's turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. This isn't just something that uh, you might say we do with our words. This impacts how we live, as I've been saying. And notice how these words sound a bit like Psalm 112. The godly man, the one who fears the Lord. James 2 verse 1. My brethren, do not hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with partiality. For if there should come into your assembly a man with gold rings and fine apparel, and there should also come in a poor man in filthy clothes, and you pay attention to the one wearing the fine clothes and say to him, you sit here in a good place, and say to the poor man, you stand there or sit here at my footstool, have you not shown partiality among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? 
Listen, my beloved brethren, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do not the rich oppress you and drag you into the courts? Do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You do well. But if you show partiality, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. And to fit in with Psalm 113, we're not acting like our God. God does not show partiality with us, so let's not do the same with others. Let's praise without ceasing in everything that we do. So the implications of this psalm are not just, okay, I'm going to do that whenever I go to church or whenever I'm praying at home. In all that we do, both now and forevermore, God is worthy of our praise. So as we come back to Psalm 113, you'll see, of course, how it ends. It ends with hallelujah, praise the Lord. The psalm begins and ends with it. The book ends all these things. Again, a, a psalm with hardly any main verbs, but here is the main verb. Let's praise Yahweh. Praise him with our words. Praise him with our minds. Praise him with our emotions. Praise him with our living. Praise without ceasing because no one, is like our God. All right. Well, next week, of course, we'll have our Christmas message, and we'll look at Psalm 114 following. So let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word that you have given to us. We thank you for this psalm and this call to worship you. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would expand our minds, our understanding, our emotions, our decisions, everything about us, that we might more fully apprehend who you are. We praise you, our Lord, for being above all things. Even though we don't fully grasp what that means, we do praise you nonetheless. We also praise you, our Lord, for coming to be with us, to us nobodies in life, as it were, and that you have lifted us up, raised us up to be your children, to be seated as spiritual nobility. And though we may not experience those blessings in the here and now as we live in this world and, and unbelievers and such around us, we know that this is something that you will uh, fulfill in, in us forever in glory. Or we will praise you in all of its fullness someday. But Lord, prepare us for that. Help us grow us in our knowledge, in our praise, that you might be glorified. And we praise you in the name of Christ, our only Lord and Savior. Amen.